0: Welcome to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. We are now in the sermon series of Ezekiel, which is the story of a leader called to deal with catastrophe. When Israel was invaded by Babylon, Ezekiel found himself in exile, living among his displaced people who refused to see what was right before their eyes. God reveals his purposes in some of the most wild and unforgettable images in the Bible. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org. We are located off C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m.
1: Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are gathered here this morning because we want to worship you. And, Father, we want to listen to your word and have the power of your spirit take your word and just uh, fold it into our lives, Lord. We pray that might happen this morning, that you might touch our minds, our hearts, our wills by the truth of your scriptures so that we go out and uh, live in ways that please you. So pray that you would... Uh, would would make that happen this morning in us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Karen Swallow uh, Pryor, Karen Swallow Pryor is a professor of English at uh, Liberty University. She was actually traveling traveling in another city, had a meeting to go to so she decided she'd walk, um, got disoriented and got a little lost. So she decided she was gonna go back to her hotel Grab a taxi and have the taxi take her to her meeting. So she really wasn't paying attention. She stepped off a curb and got slammed into by a bus. Uh, she got thrown 15, 20 feet. She doesn't remember the flight or the landing. She woke up in the ambulance uh, um, with, with the text telling her, Stay with us, stay with us. She was seriously hurt, but she survived. Um, she wrote an article about her experience. And the article is t- entitled, Sin is like walking in front of a bus. I love that title. <laughs> Here are a few things she writes, and I'm just giving you some highlights from her article. She writes this. She says, sin is like getting hit by a bus. Sin is like this in that so often it's just a tiny step away from the standard. Split uh, Split second error in judgment, a little thing like paying too much attention to one thing and not enough to another. Sin is like this in that one small lapse can cause great damage. Sin is like this in the way its consequences roll like a small snowball into a heavy heaving avalanche. Sin is like this in that it's terrifying to acknowledge that you might be the source of your own pain as well as the pain of others." Sin is like this in that it's easy when facing this truth to become entangled by self-pity, regret, and a sense of helplessness. In the conclusion of her article, she writes, to ignore sin once it has been pointed out to us is as disastrous as ignoring a massive bus bearing down on us. We discover in the book of Ezekiel that uh, the Israelites have ignored sin and now are getting slammed by the bus. Right, they have been guilty of idolatry and immorality and mistreating the poor and violence. Uh, They haven't dealt with their sin and now they're experiencing God's judgment. The Babylonians have come, they've attacked the city of Jerusalem, they've taken people into exile. Uh, They're gonna come again and, and the next time they're gonna destroy the city and destroy the temple. They're killing thousands, thousands more will go into exile. They're getting just smashed by the bus. In Ezekiel 18, we get kind of an explanation of what they should have done. I mean, they should have dealt with their sin and they didn't. Well, all this raises, I think, an important question for us. And it is, how do we deal with the brokenness in our own lives? Um, how do we deal with our own sin? I mean, it's an important question because the reality is, to various degrees, all of us are messed up. (laughs) We're, We're all broken in different ways. All of us have sin that we have to deal with. And if we ignore the sin, we will experience the bus. So what do we do? This morning, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 18. Uh, Next week, we're going to wrap the book up, uh, mainly because we've run out of passages that we can make sense of to preach on. So we we figured it's time to quit. (laughs) Now, Ezekiel's been challenging, but it's been a fun book. I I mean, there's great stuff in in this book. But in chapter 18, Ezekiel is going to lay out five steps we should take in in dealing with sin. Steps the Israelites should have taken and and, and really, really didn't. Um, And I want you to understand something. This is a life and death issue. Uh, Ezekiel in this chapter, if you were to go through and circle the words death or die or life or live you would see that he mentions those words 28 times, 28 times in 32 verses. This is a life and death issue, and sometimes he he means means it in, in a literal way. This is a bit of a judicial passage, a dispute, a legal dispute, and he's saying, you know, if you're in court and you're found guilty, they take you out and execute you you're in court and you're found innocent, then you get to go free and live. Sometimes it's used that way. Oftentimes though, these words are used in a figurative way. Um, Live, having the sense that uh, you get to experience the blessedness of what it means to live in relationship with God and all that accompanies that. Death, meaning you're moving away from God and you're going to experience the disaster and the destruction that comes without uh, without living with him in your life. It's life and death. What are you gonna do? So how do you deal with uh, the brokenness in your life? Five steps. Step number one, uh, don't play the blame game. Uh, Let's look at uh, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on age. Proverbs proverbs oftentimes can be taken in multiple ways and this is one of those proverbs. On the one hand it can be taken in the sense that hey you know, this is just life. This is the way things are. This is the way I am. Uh, yeah, our parents committed idolatry. We grew up with it. They committed immorality. We grew up with it. That's what we learn. That's the behavior we experience. Uh, that's what we do. We commit idolatry and violence and mistreat the poor. Why? Because our parents did. It's just the way things are. You can't, you know, the notion is, hey, I'm not responsible. It, it kind of hints of fatalism. This is just the way things are, just the way things are. The the other way to take this is the parents eat sour grapes. Our parents sin. They committed idolatry and uh, immorality. And guess what? And now we're the children whose teeth are set on edge. They did the sin, but we we suffer the punishment. It's not our fault. This this is unfair. This is unjust. It shouldn't be coming on us. Now, now God's response to to both of these is pretty simple. Well, let's look at Lamentations 5 so you can see this more clearly. Lamentations was written by the prophet Jeremiah. He's a contemporary of Ezekiel. He mentions the same proverb, but he makes it explicit. He says, our ancestors sin and are no more, and we bear the punishment. In both cases, they're, they're just trying to avoid responsibility. They're playing the blame game. Um, we do that, don't we? I mean, I mean, we, we've learned that's how you respond to sin because it starts very early. If you go back into the beginning of chapters of Genesis and Adam is confronted by God for eating the apple, what does he do? Blame game. Eve made me do it. Right? <laughs> God turns to Eve and says, Eve, what have you done? What does she do? Plays the blame game. Well, it was the serpent. I don't know about you, but I find that in me. I mess up. And what do I do? I always have an excuse. I always have a reason. I always have a because or a rationalization or a but. I'm always, you know, instead of just saying, yeah, I I always... I always wanna minimize my responsibility. And I minimize my responsibility by blaming somebody else. Well, God's response to that is really simple. Hogwash. I'm not gonna accept it. Look what he says. He says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. (laughs) You're not getting away with that. To, To the people who say this is just the way life is, He's saying, uh-uh. Look, I know your parents were idolatrous. I know they did all kinds of terrible things. But, but you are not simply a victim of faith. Yes, you've been dealt a, a difficult hand. But you've got to play it. And you've got to play it well. And it's your choice how you play it. Um, and just because bad things happen to you that may explain why you do what you do, but it doesn't excuse it. And I hear people coming up with excuses all the time. Well, you, Nick, you don't understand, my, my dad was never around. You, you don't understand, my, my, my parent was an addict. You don't understand, I, I've been abused. You don't understand, I've been mistreated. You, you don't understand, you don't know what I've gone through that's the kind of tapes I've been given. May explain stuff, but it doesn't excuse you. The hand you've been given may be really, really hard to play. But at some point, you have to grow up and play it. You don't get a pass just because you have difficult circumstances. You have choices, and you are the one who determines your circumstances. By the choices and decisions and behaviors you choose to take. So grow up. To those who complain that it's unjust, he says, "Uh -uh. uh-uh. Uh-uh. Ethically, I do not hold the children culpable for the sins of the parents. Now, in the Old Testament, it says, look, God does visit the sins of the parents onto the third and fourth generation, but what he's talking about is the difference between consequence and culpability. You will live with the consequences of the choices and decisions and actions uh, that your parents make. They'll ingrain patterns in you and tapes in your head. You will live with the consequences, but you will not be held guilty unless you play the tapes out in your own life. I grew up with a father who had a terrible temper. He was angry a lot of the time. He taught me how to be angry and to, uh, what to say when I'm angry and how to blow up and how to have a temper. But to be honest, folks, I have never been disciplined for the temper of my father. I have been disciplined for my own temper. But I'm not culpable for him, his choices, or his actions by culpable for my own. God says, look, don't don't play the blame game. Take responsibility. Step up. You decide. You make choices. You're responsible. I like what Christopher Wright writes about this. This is on his commentary on Ezekiel. He puts it well. He says, we are solicited on all sides by attractive alternatives to personal responsibility. The need to find someone or something else to blame is matched by a limitless supply of convenient scapegoats. The inadequacy of parents, or of schools, of employers, the inequality of our social status or economic opportunity, the inevitability of our genetic inheritance, a personality type, now conveniently classifiable, society, poverty, mental or emotional stress. The list goes on and on. Any or all of these factors And many more, of course, can have profound influence on our lives for good or ill. But when people allow themselves to be protected by such a wall of external factors from accepting personal responsibility, they are locked into a world where repentance has no meaning. Don't play the blame game. Take responsibility. That's the first step. The second step is that you have to realize that that we each belong to God. Let's look at verses uh, 3 and 4 again. He says, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel, for everyone belongs to me. The parents as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. He's saying, look, Not only can you not play the blame game, but you have to understand that you belong to me and and thus you will stand before me. You are accountable to me. Now this notion that we belong to God just has profound implications for us and, and, and how we live. For one thing, it it, it tells us that at the center of the universe is not an impersonal force, is not simply a power or or, or a thing. It it tells us, now at the center of the universe is a person and that, get this, we are in relationship with that person and, and, and we belong to him. He owns us. We are his. And that changes everything. We, we are, are not simply uh, players in, in a mindless fatalism. There's a, a, a person at the center of it all. And he defines the nature of the relationship between us and that person. Did you see that? He says, he declares himself the sovereign Lord. What's that mean? Well, sovereign means that he's our king. In other words, he's describing the nature of the relationship between us and him. He is our sovereign. We are his vassal. He is our king. We are his servant. Now, think what that means. That means the whole purpose, meaning, and reason for being in our lives is connected to him. We are here to serve the king. That's why we exist. He's our sovereign. our sovereign. And what that means is we have to structure life in such a way that we live out his purposes and his values and seek above all else to please him. That's profound. But you know what else it means? It means that there's an equality between us. It it, it means that not only is it true that I'm his and you're his, but every person you meet is His. They belong to Him. Right? And, and what gives them significance and what gives them value is that they're His. Because we take our value not so much intrinsically by what we are, but by who we belong to. Imagine that you have to, to, uh, to borrow a car. And you have a daughter and she has a 2000 Corolla. So You borrow her car. How do you treat her car? Well, it's your daughter's car, and it's a 2000 Corolla. So, yeah, you try to take care of it. But if you get in an accident, you know, you're going to pay for it anyway. So, no big deal. But imagine that instead of borrowing your daughter's car, you borrow your boss's car, and it's a brand-new Tesla. How do you treat it? Oh man. <laughs> Why? Well, partly is it's a Tesla, so it has some value, but beyond that, it's your boss's Tesla. Man, you are so careful with that because it has, oh, well, it's your boss's car. It has incredible value. Now understand this. Every person you encounter in life and in the world is a Tesla. Owned by the boss. Think what that means. It means that there's no place for racism. There is no place for racial superiority. It it means that whether a person is white or brown or black or olive or purple, they're owned by him and have infinite value. It means whether you're American or Syrian or Ecuadorian or Iranian or Russian or Chinese, you're owned by him and have incredible value. We're Teslas. And it means that whether a person is a Christian or a Hindu, or a Muslim, or a Buddhist, or a Protestant, or an Australian. <laughs> <laughs> They're owned by him. They're Teslas. Now, folks, understand this. That truth is foundational to our ethics. As individuals and as communities and as nations. And that means we have to live that out. We cannot act in the world as if somehow we're specially privileged that we don't need to care anybody about anybody else. We cannot say to the world, well we got ours, you'll have to work to get yours. We don't don't have to care about you. It's it's only us that matter. I I mean, think about you being a parent and if you have multiple kids, uh, do you care how each one's treated? Do you care that one has lots of resources and the other has none? And, And that the one has lots of resources, really selfish and doesn't wanna share? And if you're the parent you know what you're thinking? Hey, 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 bud, the resources. You know those resources, you, you know where they ultimately come from? Me. Me. I know you think they're yours, but that's just an illusion. And, and if they're ultimately mine, and this person who belongs to me, this Tesla over here, has nothing, it's not okay. You just turn a blind eye, close everything up. I've got mine, I'm gonna protect it. It's all about me being first. Keeping what I have. Shutting everybody else out. Folks, that's what we're saying. That's how we're operating as a nation. And how in the world do we as a church say, yeah, that's great. I like that. That suits me. That's a denial of God's values and heart.
0: It just is. It
1: just is. And there's no justification for it. It's wrong. It's immoral. And we as the church should be saying no, that's, that is not okay. Not okay. So we have to, first of all, not play the game blame game. Second of all, we have to understand that we belong to him. It makes all the difference in the world. And third, we have to understand that we will each be held accountable to him, the one we belong to, for how we live. Now Ezekiel is going to, to use three case studies to make his point, and it's a long passage. So we're gonna look at the third. Uh, but but the first case study he gives is about a father who lives a righteous life. And because he lives a righteous life, he lives. He's accountable for how he lives, he lives righteously, he lives. Verse five through nine. There's a son, and his son is wicked. He lives unrighteously, and as a result, he dies, verses 10 through 13. But but then there's a grandson, the son of the wicked, and the grandson of the righteous. But he decides, he sees how his father lives, but he decides to live righteously, and he lives. Verses 14 through 18. Now I want us to, to look at verses 14 through 18, and then we're gonna chase a bunny trail for a moment, and then we'll come back to the point he's making. But but let's look at the verses. Ezekiel 18, 14 through 18. But suppose this son, this is the grandson, right? No, the the son is the wicked, has a son who's the grandson, who sees all the sins his father commits. And though he sees them, he does not do such things. He, He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defy his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor and takes no interest or profit from them. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. Will he not die for his father's sin? He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Okay, we'll come back. The point he's making, you're accountable for your own behavior, but we've got to notice something here that's really important. In every scenario, he gives a list, a definition of what righteousness is. And it's the same list. The one in the middle doesn't do the ones on, that the other two do do. We need to look at this list more closely. Because at that, in, in that list, you get an understanding of how God views righteousness. Now, I made a summary and let me make a few comments before we look in detail at the list. First of all, this is not a list of how you gain a, 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 a relationship with God. Uh, the relationship is already assumed. This is a person who lives in the covenant of Israel. So this is really a list of the expectations. If you're, you're a, a, a child of God living in relationship with him, this is the expected behavior that you live out, out of gratitude and obligation. It's not a, a list of achievement, so you can get right with him, that's one thing. Second thing to notice, if I ask you to think about the, a, a godly person you know, typically what we do is we picture somebody in, in our minds who, who's great at living out personal morality. Um, because that's how we define righteousness. And, and that's part of the righteousness defined here, we'll see that in a moment. But this list goes way behind that. God does not define righteousness simply by your personal morality. He begins to talk about the social relationships you have and how you treat other people, especially economically. And third, when you read this list, you've got to understand that this isn't a culture of the haves and the have-nots, right? But both the haves and the have-nots are, are living before who? The sovereign Lord who owns everyone? Okay? So with those things in mind, let's, let's look at the list. It, it may not be interesting to you, but to me, it's absolutely fascinating because it reshapes how we think about what it means to be godly. All right. Let's begin. Exclusive loyalty to God. Uh, the righteous doesn't get entrapped in idolatry. They serve God alone, and their allegiance is to him. Second, they practice sexual integrity. In other words, the the relationship they have with their covenant partner in marriage is sacrosanct. They protect that, and and they don't commit adultery. They don't violate that relationship by, by having sex with people outside of their marriage. It's wrong. But then, third, does not take advantage or oppress people economically. We we live in a world that says, you know, you can get away economically with whatever the market will bear, right? Charge as much as people will pay. And and he's saying, no, 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 no. The standard isn't simply what the market will bear. There is a notion of fairness here. And and in the text, he talks about taking a pledge. Because remember, this is the have and the have nots. Somebody needs needs some money so they can survive for the next day. So they need to take a bit of a loan and, and they... The one, the has say, well, I'll do that if you give me a pledge. Give me your coat. Give me your coat. Give me your cow. And then, then, then I'll give you enough to get by. And remember, saying, God is saying, wait, 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 you both belong to me. You're both my ch- Well, What are you doing? You don't charge just with the You You treat other people fairly. Then it says you respect the property rights of others. Why do some people steal? Because they can get away with it, and it's an abuse of power. And basically what was happening in the culture, you had the rich and the poor, and the rich could take whatever they want, and the poor could do nothing about it because they didn't have any power to do anything about it. As long as the rich could get away with it, they, that's okay. Oh, then notice what he says. The halves need to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. In other words, it's not just that you don't mistreat the have-nots, you become responsible for taking care of them in some ways. You cannot turn a blind eye. You cannot say, it's not my responsibility. You cannot say, I'm going to abdicate it. Somebody else is going to have to take care of them. You gotta say, no, 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 don't you understand? You're both my kids. And that implies a responsibility. The haves to the have nots. And and that's a matter of godliness. It's not a matter of politics, this is a matter of righteousness. And then he says, the righteous person never mistreats the poor. Now, Now, why is it that God cares so much about the poor? You know, if you go into the Old Testament, one of the things you'll encounter is what's called the quartet of the vulnerable. And you see them hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Do you know who the quartet of the vulnerable are? The widow, the orphan, the poor, and the immigrant. And God cares especially for them. Why? Because those four people are disenfranchised. They're landless. In other words, they don't have the means of production. So thus, in that society, they were the most vulnerable and remember, he's talking about the have and the have-nots, and it's under the context of the sovereign who owns everyone. And he's saying, I, I care about them. Why? Because they're, as a parent, which of your kids do you care and worry about the most? The one who's struggling the most. And God is no different. And God is concerned that you treat the poor and the immigrant and the widow, and the orphan. You cannot turn a blind eye. You, you cannot plead, it's not my responsibility. This is part of godliness. The next, does not profit from, these, from the less economically advantaged. We cannot create systems that advantage the rich and disadvantage the poor. That is unjust. And what was happening here, they were charging usury. They were charging interest. And he's not talking about the kind of interest you pay on a home loan or a car loan. He's he's talking about like payday interest. You know, when when you're desperate and and your check's coming, but you don't have the money right now, but you need enough resources to to survive for the moment, these people go to the payday and and the guy says, yeah, I'll lend you money. Just a little interest rate, 20% in a week. Right, it's what the market will bear, we say it's legal. And God says, no, that's not okay. You don't take advantage of somebody's desperate situation for your economic benefit. Why? Because they belong to me, and you belong to me. Judges fairly. The haves were able to go into the law courts and bribe the judges and distort the legal system. And God says, no, if you're godly and righteous, you don't do that. You want to protect the rights of all. And then he says, the the righteous follow God's commands. Folks, (laughs) we need to think hard about what it means to be godly and what it means to be Righteous and what it is that God expects from us. And he expects personal morality and a lot more. How we operate in the social fabric of our communities matters to God a ton. Okay, that's a bunny trail. Back to the point, we we see the point he was making in Ezekiel chapter 20, uh, 18 verse 20. He says, the righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. In other words, he's saying, look, uh, um, you're going to be held accountable, but you're gonna be held accountable for your own sins, not your parents. He's promoting this notion of individual responsibility. But, But note this, note this. Because we want to go to this passage and say everybody's individually responsible for themselves, so it abdicates me. He's making, he's using individual examples, but this gets a corporate application, right? Who's being held accountable? All the Israelites exist right there, the whole community, they go into exile. They suffer the invasion of the Babylonians. Uh, many of them who are killed aren't people who were participating. There, there's a sense where there's also, yes, I'm individually responsible for my behavior, but I live in this community, and this community is responsible, and since I'm part of that community, I be, not from my parents, but from the community I live in. That's why Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And suddenly you say, "Oh, there's, yeah, I'm individually responsible before God for what I do, but I'm part of this community that is responsible for Him as well." So what's this mean? Well, the good news, the good news is I'm accountable for my own behavior. I'm not culpable for my parents. I'm culpable for mine. Yeah, in the community I live in, but that I have some control. I'm comfortable for my own behavior. But do you know what the bad news is? Here's the bad news. I'm accountable for my own behavior. <laughs> you know why that's bad news? Because I'm screwed up. I mess up. I sin. I'm broken. And I will be accountable for that before the one who owns me. So what do I do? Which gets us to the fourth step. You need to practice repentance and perseverance. Um, Ezekiel gives us a couple examples now. And they're, they're fascinating. First he's going to talk about a wicked Person. He says, but if a wicked person turns away from all the sin they have committed and keeps all the decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. So he's saying, Here, here's this wicked person. He's going away from God. He's going into this sin and debauchery and all this stuff. But if he turns away from his sin and he turns towards obedience, God is pleased. And this amazing thing right? None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them because of the righteous things they have done. They will live. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Isn't that incredible? He's saying, look, if you, you, you turn, if you repent, we call this repentance. If you repent and head the right way, that's life. Get that. I like that. Okay, this is the one that's hard now. Now he talks about the righteous person. But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked person does, will they live? In other words, the righteous person going towards God, they, they go crazy. They make stupid decisions. Now they turn towards wickedness. What happens to them? Look, none of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty of, and because of the sins they have committed, they will die. Oh, that, that doesn't that make you nervous? Uh, uh, um. <laughs> One of the things this tells us is God does not grade on a scale. It's not like at the end of our life, he, 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 he you know. Looks at all your righteous behavior and then all your wicked behavior and see which one weighs out. Now it has more to do with your direction, and not simply a momentary decision. It's it's not that you raise your hand and pray to prayer and now you're good. Now he's saying, what's the direction? Where's your life going? How are you living? Where are you ending up? So, so re- he's saying you've got to live a, a life of repentance and you've got to avoid apostasy. Look at what those mean. Repentance is turning away from sin and stepping towards obedience. And apostasy is turning away from obedience and stepping towards sin. In other words, we have to live a life where we're always self-correcting, always getting back on track, always staying in the right direction. Um... At my house, at this particular time, I'm the one who, who does most of the cleaning and the vacuuming. So I decided to splurge a little bit, and I got a robotic vac. It's called a bot, bot, bot vac. Um, he's really cool. <laughs> he is so cool. I love my bot vac. We, we named him Ralph, okay? That, that, that's Ralph. Uh, um, and I was thinking about Ralph. I mean, he is a great example of how we're supposed to live. Right, right, you push the button on Ralph, and what he does is he makes this, this map of your house. So, so he knows that he's on a mission to vacuum your house, and he knows where he's going, Okay. But, but Ralph has all these sensors. He's got this laser that spins, and the laser tells him if there's an obstacle in the way or some, something new is in the path or, and, and warns him, you know, oh, we've got to avoid that, and I shouldn't go here. And I, I mean, just like us, we need our sensors out, or kind of our laser telling us what we need to avoid, what trouble we need to stay out of. And then he's got other sensors. He's got bumpers on him. So when he runs into a table leg, he's like, oh, uh, I need to back up, and he backs up, and then he goes around the table leg. He's so cool. He got, I love this. I love Ralph. Um, and he just maneuvers all around the house, and he has sensors underneath. So we have stairs, right? So Ralph goes up to the edge of the stair, and as soon as the sensor goes over the edge, Ralph goes, "Oh crud!" and he backs up. It's great. You know, he avoids trouble. Now, every once in a while, Ralph needs forgiveness. <laughs> so you got to go and you got to push the stop button and you got to take out his dustpan and go empty out all the crap, all the dust. And then put it back in, then you plug Ralph in, and then he goes on. And every once in a while, Ralph gets stuck. He gets in a situation he can't get out of. And, and do you know what Ralph does when he's stuck? He prays. No, literally, he sends me a message on my phone. (laughs) And and it says, it says, I am stuck. (laughs) Come help me. (laughs) So you gotta go get Ralph, and you gotta pick him up, and you gotta put him back on the path. (laughs) And I thought, this is the Christian life. I'm a (laughs) botzack. And I just have to go around self-correcting, paying attention to my sensors, sus, sus, getting forgiveness, praying when I get stuck. And that's what Ezekiel is saying. We, we got to be self-correcting. You see, okay, I get it. Can't play the name game. I'm, I belong to God. I, I'm responsible to him for my behavior and I got to live a life of repentance and perseverance. But I'm not sure I can do it. I'm not sure I have the power or the capacity in me to pull it off. Do you know Ralph sometimes runs out of gas? His battery gets low. Do you know what Ralph does? He, he needs something from the outside to recharge the inside, kind of like us. So do you know what Ralph does? He, he stops vacuuming, and he heads back. No matter where, it's so, the coolest thing. No matter where he is, he stops vacuuming, and he heads back, and he knows, he knows where his base is, his charging station. And he drives himself over to the charging station, and he turns around, and then he backs up. And it's really cool, he wiggles his butt to make sure he has contact. (laughs) Because he has to connect with that which will charge the inside. Folks, sometimes we need something from the outside to change our inside. We need a new heart and we need a new spirit. And look what Ezekiel does. He says, therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get, what? A new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. You know, I think sometimes we have this mistaken notion about God, kind of like, you know, God God just is waiting up there to punish us and judge us and to implement his wrath, and he kind of takes joy in it. It's kind of like he's driving the bus, you know, and he's just waiting for somebody to step off the curb, and rah, got another one. It's like God is out to get us. Folks, God is not out to get us. Now he implements his justice and he exercises his wrath because he wants the world he lives in to be a place of justice that reflects his character. But when he does, he does so with a broken heart. What he really wants is for us to come to him He wants to give us a new heart and a new spirit. He wants to empower us to to be these people who venture through the world, kind of living a life of repentance and perseverance. He wants to change us from the inside out. And Ezekiel didn't understand all of this, but what he really wants is for us to know this person we call Jesus, who is the one who ultimately takes care of our sins. How does that happen? Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that, that's a proclamation of allegiance. It's not raising a hand or simply praying a prayer. It's it's making this decision, this, this commitment that I am going to have a lifelong commitment, an allegiance to Jesus. He is going to be my king. Lord means master, king. That's the decision I'm making and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What Jesus died for our sin and God raised him to show us that the sin had been paid for. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You make that decision, that commitment, that declaration of allegiance and you live that out and God empowers you with a new heart and a new spirit he he changes you on the inside folks don't get hit by a bus don't get hit by a bus deal with it. don't ignore your sin deal with it don't play the blame game understand you belong to him Realize that you will have to give an account for your life to him. And that means you need to be self-correcting, living a life of repentance and perseverance. And you can only do that if you have a new heart and a new spirit. I invite you this morning to know him, to meet Jesus, to serve the one who owns you. Let's pray. Father, help us to uh, (laughs) live as your people, to live out your values, to pursue your kingdom, to deal with our sin, to rely on that heart and spirit that you can put in us. We pray that would be true for us and true for your church. We pray this in Christ's name.
0: To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.